All right, well, hey folks, this is John coming from the head of the bed, and today I'm joined by Dr. Denim Ward, MD, PhD, who is the co-director of the Academy at Maine Medical Center Institute for Teaching Excellence and a professor of anesthesiology at Tufts University School of Medicine. Dr. Ward is also a professor emeritus and chair of anesthesiology and professor emeritus of biomedical engineering at the University of Rochester. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Ward about the topic of developing expertise in one's anesthesia practice and how to teach this as a concept in anesthesia educational programs. Dr. Ward, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So you recently gave a talk to the anesthesia department at Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine, titled Expertise, What Is It? How Do I Get and Keep It? And How Do I Teach It? Those questions seem like a pretty good place to start our conversation today. So how is expertise defined in healthcare? Well, that's, that's not a, really a simple question. Um, when I gave my talk, I actually went to Wikipedia to get the, the definition, which, which let me just read that, but then I want to come up with some different ones. Because uh, the Wikipedia definition is probably what most people think of what an expert is. An expert is someone widely recognized as a reliable source of techniques or skills whose faculty for judging or deciding rightly, justly, or wisely is acquired authority and status by their peers or the public in a specific, well-distinguished domain. So that's basically saying an expert is somebody who uh, their colleagues recognize as being an expert. But I'd, let me throw a couple other kind of definitions that I think work for healthcare too. The first definition is an expert has better outcomes. Uh, if a patient is taken care of by an expert, of a number of patients taken care of by an expert, those patients statistically and generally should have better outcomes than taken care of by a non-expert. Now that's easy to see if you have a comparison between a first year resident or student and they're attending. Clearly there's a big difference there. A little harder to see that uh, in uh, when we're all fully trained. But that's ultimately what we're saying is that on a group of patients, the expert's gonna have better outcomes. Uh, there is one study I want to quote from the surgical literature, which I think is just an incredible study published in the New England Journal a, a couple of years ago, where there's a group of bariatric surgeons allowed their cases to be videoed. Uh, and they then shared those videos with a group of other bariatric surgeons who judged their surgical technique. How do they handle the tissue? How rapid they were? You know, all the things that we see at the head of the bed that, that we know make up a, a, good, a good surgeon. Right. And then they correlated that with outcomes of the bariatric. How many complications did those bariatric surgeons have? And sure enough, there was a very high degree of correlation. The surgeons who were judged to have a more superior technique by viewers who didn't know what the outpatient outcomes were had, had fewer complications in those patients. Hmm. So there was a difference in expertise that could be noticed by their peers that had better outcomes. So I think ultimately we have to define it in terms of better outcomes for our patients. That's very interesting. Now there are some theories of expertise that are well known in the literature. Dreyfus is one of those who describes this idea of a novice to an advanced beginner to someone who's competent and then proficient and then on to expert and mastery. How do you think that theory plays into the concept of expertise and where do you think most anesthesia providers are, you know, at the entry to practice after, say, a board certification process? Sure. I think at the entry to practice, I, I, I hope all our graduates are competent, uh, but I think calling them experts at that point 
hopefully they're going to continue to improve their practices. Obviously, there's a huge amount of literature on expertise, uh, both practical and theoretical, uh, in medicine, outside of medicine. A lot of the literature comes from looking at uh, chess players, musicians, athletes, areas in which there's a, a kind of an easy to measure outcome. You know, we know who a better right. we know who a better chess player is because he beats all the other chess players. Uh, it's more difficult in, he- in healthcare, as we just talked about, because it's a little harder to define who an expert in. Uh, so there's a huge literature with a, with a bunch of really uh, excellent thinkers in, in expertise in various areas. Uh, Dreyfus is one of them, uh, and I think his ideas of progression from novice to mastery and practical wisdom is an important one. Uh, I think other authors would think of his progression as perhaps a little bit more linear than it actually is. He thought, I mean, with increasing experience, we progressed from novice to expert. And perhaps just experience isn't enough to ensure that progression. Uh, and that progression may not be uniform. We may become an expert in a portion of our profession and still not be an expert in another portion. Mm. So you know, you may be an expert putting in uh, blocks, but not an expert in handling a sick patient for a cardiac bypass. Right. So expert is in a defined area. And in, within a profession, you may be developing expertise in one area and be a full expert in another in another area. That's interesting. And and unfortunately, as your career goes on, uh, you may backslide. Just because you become an expert doesn't mean you can stay there. And that's what our examination process hopefully does, right? That's what the board certification and the and the CRNA certification process does. And now we're just getting into the maintenance of certification idea. It's right. been very controversial, uh, but I think that's because. Uh, the leaders in our specialty is are concerned that if you've reached a level of competence and expertise, you may not stay there. And there needs to be some sort of, of workplace level, at least, maintenance of certification right. process. It, it, I mean, it is a contentious issue for both anesthesiologists and CRNAs uh, in both professional organizations right now. You shared in, the, in your talk a fascinating graph that kind of outlined some of this a little bit further that Say with the physician anesthesiologist, you have you've got med school, then residency, and for those who pursue one, a fellowship. All of these things enhance someone's expertise, but then along in someone's career, a plateau happens, and surprisingly, uh, the idea that expertise may fall off towards the end of one's career. Uh, the quote that you provide along with the graph is from Anders Ericsson, and it reads: "Most professionals reach a stable, average level of performance within a relatively short time frame." and maintain this mediocre status for the rest of their careers. Why do people plateau in a career and perhaps even fall off in their level of expertise? Sure. Well, I think the, you know, the idea of a learning curve has been investigated in a lot of areas. And like for intubation from a beginner, the learning curve to get an 80% success rate, is about 50 intubations, you pretty much will have an 80% success rate, which is probably not good enough. But that plateaus after that. The difficulty becomes, and, and we can generalize this, but to use this as an example, if you then practice only in an ambulatory care center, for example, in which the kind of the, the screening for who gets operated on an ambulatory care center is only you know, young, healthy people, and maybe you've got a BMI of 40 kind of criteria that they then don't get operated on there, your level of expertise in uh, doing intubation is probably going to plateau. Uh, if you don't have an opportunity to practice on 
uh, more difficult cases, to, to use the range of tools that we have available to us. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to uh, use a glide scope very often, or even more importantly, you know, how it happens if, you know, with a glide scope you can see, but you can't get the tube there. Right. Uh, the techniques that you combine a fiber optic innovation with a glide scope, you know, some of the, if you haven't practiced using some of those ideas on more difficult patients, you're probably not going to keep that expertise that you may have had a little bit during your, your, your training. So I think the difficulty in, as, as Erickson said, reaching a stable average level of performance is that's pretty much good enough. Um, you know, for most of what we do every day, that's good enough. And it gets our patients through and it, and it works. But most of us don't go out of our way to find that difficult case, right? Most of us don't look on the schedule and say, oh, that's going to be a really hard case. And either say, oh, let me do it. Or let me go in and, you know, let me take some time off on my own time and go watch how you do it. Maybe I can, can learn something from it. I mean, our lives are busy and we have other things to do. But right. going and, and finding that, you know, outside the box kind of case. I mean, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, if you think about the athletes and chess players, they don't get better by playing people who aren't as good as they are. Right. They get better by trying to compete against people who might actually be better and might actually beat them. Same for us. We don't get better by only doing cases we know how to do. We only get better by, by challenging ourselves to try to make sure we get cases that are harder for us to do. Right. Now, we see that during our training, right? We, we see that progression of, you know, when your first day of training, they don't stick you in the cardiac room. You know, the, you see that progression as you go along. We don't see that progression once we get out on our own. There's a couple of comments that you mentioned that I'd, I'd like to come back to you later in terms of maintenance of expertise. But I want to build out a couple more concepts for a little bit more context on this topic. You've talked in the past about the interplay with expertise that innate abilities have in uh, intelligence and personality. How much of expertise has to do with one's innate abilities? Yeah, that's a very controversial area in the, in the literature on expertise. And I, I won't say that I'm an expert on expertise necessarily. <laughs> I've, I've, I've accessed the literature and tried to apply it to my, to my educational uh, faculty development uh, interests. But in my reading, that's, that's an incredibly uh, controversial topic. Uh, on, on one side are people like Erickson, uh, who really says it's really nothing to do with innate abilities. Uh, it has everything to do with deliberate practice. And that has a lot to do with it. And I, and I think there are some obvious exceptions to it, right? I could never be an NBA player no matter how much, how much I practiced. But the top NBA players also practice, practice, practiced. So clearly there's some interplay with innate ability and practice. But Erickson's point, I think, has been overinterpreted, and he's, he's written about this. His point is really more not that there is nothing to do with innate ability in, in succeeding and becoming an expert, in that we sometimes use that as an excuse. Uh, oh, I can't be that good because I, never, I don't have the ability to do that. Uh, rather than saying, yeah, I may have to put in a little extra work, I may have to put in a few more hours of practice, uh, but I can, I can get pretty good at that. So he, he's saying it's, it's not so much the innate abilities as it is our ability, willingness to put that time and effort in. Interestingly, some of the innate ability, though, may be more on things like grit, things like stick 
it may not be things that are not captured with an intelligence test, uh, desire, things that uh, help you learn how to study, uh, willingness to put the effort in because that's what you really want to do. And those, some of those things may be more innate. That's uh, the truth. Uh, rather than the really, you know, I only have an innate ability to be a great anesthetist. Well, that's maybe not, not so much. Right. So some psychologists have argued that intelligence actually is not a fixed trait, but something that's fluid and can be developed over time with hard work, determination, those kind of things. What, what would you say to that? Yeah, I mean, that's, I don't know as much about that, uh, but the sort of the, the kind of the standard IQ test clearly just tests a limited uh, aspect of, of our intelligence, and there's certainly much work done in multiple intelligences and the social intelligence and all these, all these other factors. Clearly, uh, our success uh, in our specialty depend, is multifactorial. Uh, you know, you can't really, can't really give an IQ test to decide uh, how you're going to succeed or not. I, I think the point is, as far as an IQ test is concerned, that an average IQ can get you an awful long ways with uh, the kind of the other factors that go into to our learning and our willingness to practice. Right. How is deliberate practice different from merely being on the job for years and, and obtaining years and years of experience? Yeah. Well, that, do, that, do, do they both get you to the same endpoint? No, I think they clearly don't. Uh, and we touched on that a little bit. You know, practice doing something you know how to do is not deliberate practice. Uh, I think we, we got to think about musicians, um, and, and I'm not a musician, I, but I think if you talk to a musician and Practice is kind of doing the same thing over and over and over again until you get it right. I mean, it's not sitting down and playing the whole piece. It's playing a shot piece of the, of the piece that doesn't feel quite right. Um, so deliberate practice has a couple of elements. It's breaking the job down into its components. It's being able to reflect on how you did. So it has a degree of self-monitoring. And we can maybe talk about coaching a little bit at, at some point. But sometimes you need some help, an external person to say, you know, you didn't do that quite right, and maybe you should try this. Um, somebody pointed out that if practice is fun, it's not practice. Hmm. Uh, deliberate practice is hard work. Uh, and sometimes you need a coach to help you through that hard work. And you know, experience is coming in and doing your job and going home. The experience isn't, gee, I was there were some things today that didn't go quite as smoothly as I thought they should. How can I practice those? Maybe I have to go over to the sim lab. Maybe I need to go spend an afternoon doing it over and over and over again on the simulator. So I would be better at that. You know, in the past, it's been hard to do that. You know, the difference between medicine and music is musicians practice, 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 and then they go to Carnegie Hall for one evening. You know, we're essentially at Carnegie Hall every day. Uh, you know, we have to kind of, how do we do our practice with the same time we do our performance? Right. Simulation has really helped us a lot on that. Uh, I don't think the practitioners uh, take enough advantage of, of that simulation aspect. I mean, how many of us out in practice 10 or 15 years say, I'm going to go back and spend the day in the sim lab trying to learn how to do something better? And, and many may not have that technology or, or facilities available to them. We're, we're very fortunate in Portland, Maine to have that available there. Yeah, maybe one course at the national meeting that, that you go right. f, you know, for an afternoon. So deliberate practice means that you've looked at your, at your own experience and said there's some things that aren't good enough. So you have to self-assess. You have to be able to design your, experience, your practice experience, uh, and you have to be able to reflect on that practice experience to see if you're getting, if you're getting better. Much has been said about 
the idea that Malcolm Gladwell presented of, in terms of you know, 10,000 hours of practice leads to a, a degree of expertise, but it's not just a time element of experience, as we've said. It, it takes this deliberate, reflective practice. Yeah, he, he got, it was a fascinating book, uh, but he picked that up from Erickson, and uh, Erickson did have some empirical data on, on 10,000 hours. But Erickson was very clear. Uh, it was 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. It wasn't 10,000 hours of just plain experience. Right. Uh, and and that's, a big, that's a big difference. So let's drill down a little bit more in terms of specific types of thinking. Will you speak a little bit about system one and system two thinking in terms of decision making? Yeah, uh, that comes from uh, in a book I'd highly recommend, Daniel Kahneman's book that was just published, I think, last year, who's a Nobel Prize winner called Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, and it's a, it's an easy read, and and uh, if somebody is interested in this, that's a great place a great place to start. I don't remember whether he was the one that coined the system one system two thinking, but he uses that uh, in his book. It's not necessarily a great because it's you know there's no real definition there. I like to think of system one and system two as as if you relate to driving a car. System one is that intuitive kinds of things you don't even have to think about what you're doing. When you drove into work this morning, in fact, you could probably think about something else and listen, listen to the radio and not really worry about anything going on. Uh, so that's the in, in, intuition. That's automatic. You don't even have uh -huh. to think about it for system one thinking. System two thinking is, is when you know, the train gate comes down. Or maybe the, you can't, don't see a train, but the railroad crossing bar, come, bar comes down and then goes right back up again. Uh, wait a minute, should I just drive through? Uh, it came down and went back up again. Maybe there's a train coming. Maybe that maybe the gate isn't working quite right. right. Maybe I better really stop and look both ways. Uh, so that's system two thinking. Uh, the bar's up. I could just drive through, but something unusual happened there. The bar came down and went right back up again. Uh, that's I can't. That's a, that doesn't happen every morning when I drive when I drive to work. I got to think about this. What else could be going on? What's what's kind of my differential diagnosis here? Uh, that was it. Really, is a train coming, and and the machine malfunctioned. The machine malfunctioned, and there isn't a train coming. What's going on? So the system two is that more difficult, slow kind of thinking, that uh, you know it's hard work. So it's non-intuitive. People call it cognitive kinds of thinking. And, and we use both of these in our practices, expert clinicians. Intermingled all all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we we use system one. Uh, I mean, for, for example, for system one thinking, I got called to the room uh, in a case because a fairly early early resident uh, was having a little trouble with hypotension in a pretty big belly pretty big belly case, and he had just topped up the epidural, uh, but given some fluid and that didn't seem to make make a difference. I was wondering why the pressure was still down, and so I walked in the room and and without thinking, first thing I said was to the surgeon, take that retractor out of the liver. And the blood pressure just came right up, back, back up. Take, take the retractor, retractor out, out of, of the liver. Out of the liver. Because he was pulling on the liver and oppressing the vena cava, yeah. and the venous return was down. Now, system two thinking would be to try to go through it. Okay, hypotension means you know, myocardial depression, means low venous return, means vasodilatation on the arterial side. There's a whole big, we obviously know sure. a differential. And I've been thinking about some of those things walking in the room. But when I walked in the room without even thinking, without even consciously noticing that there was a big retractor that the intern was pulling hard on in the right upper quadrant, without even consciously noticing that. I noticed it and said, take that retractor out. Right. Uh, 
that's kind of the system one automatic thinking that we have. But there's other examples too of, okay, you took the retractor out and it, blood pressure didn't, it didn't come back up. All right, now I gotta go back and kind of figure out, figure out what's, going, what's going on. So frequently system one is our initial response, uh -huh. particularly in anesthesia where we have to think fast. Uh, we don't always have the luxury of going back and you know, pulling the literature and doing a big, big differential. So a lot of our stuff is system, is system one thinking. But you know, a lot of the anesthesiologists talk about plan, always have a plan B. Frequently system two thinking is, is, plan, is plan B. Is there a goal to move towards one or the other of these systems, or are we kind of working on utilizing both of those systems in practice? Yeah, as as we're learning, I mean, I think really two issues, two fairly important issues there. As we're learning, our role models uh, frequently are using almost all system one thinking. We're doing routine cases together; it goes it goes smoothly, and, and students want to be. Oh, I want to do that, do that too. So we develop role models that look like it's all system one thinking. Sometimes that kind of happens too soon. Um, I mean, it's as simple as a concept of bad habits, right? I mean, we, we, we see things to do, uh, and I want to do it that way all the time, and you don't always know the, the subtlety of it. So the learning process is you start out with almost all system two thinking. Think about learning to drive a car, right? Where's the brake? Where's the gear shift? How do I? How do I, you have to think about every single thing? And, that, and it's exhausting. I mean, I think many of our residents and SRNAs would say those early days in clinical are, are just exhausting. You're thinking hard about everything. It's all system two thinking. And a lot of theory is shaping. I mean, that kind of interplays back into Dreyfus, where you've got someone with not a lot of clinical experience. Many rules and theories are at play in trying to make those decisions as you develop. Correct experience and judgment. And the danger of that is that there's the rush to develop all system one thinking. Because that's what you see your expert clinicians doing, so that's what you want to be. So you, you try to de develop system one thinking. Do it automatically. Don't have to think about it because it makes it easier. You're not as tired. And the danger is if you do that too quickly to develop bad habits. Mm -hmm. So the combination of system one and system two thinking kind of should be developing in parallel. And that's one of the difficulties in teaching to expertise is how do we teach people not to develop system one too quickly, but to develop the right kinds of system one thinking. But a concept I haven't touched on yet that I think is, is really important, as we develop system one and system two, is that knowing when to switch. Right. And Moulton, a vascular surgeon up in Toronto, has probably written the most on that in relation to, to healthcare. She called it knowing when to slow down. Is Things are going on smoothly, uh, everything's going great, but something doesn't feel quite right, and you step back. In internal medicine, that's probably called premature closure, uh, that you grind ahead on system one thinking, and you don't, you miss the diagnosis because you, nothing clued you. Well, it doesn't quite fit right. I need to think about this a little bit, little bit more. We'll see it in our surgical colleagues sometimes when things are going along, and maybe the anatomy doesn't quite what they expected, and all of a sudden the room gets quieter, and the banter stops, and the music turns off because he's learned or she's learned to switch from system one kind of routine thinking to system two thinking. Right. That hasn't been studied all that well, uh, but to me, that's really the hallmark of a true expert who attacks hard cases, uses system one thinking most of the time, but knows when to slow down, knows when to switch from system one thinking to system two thinking. Yeah. What would perhaps be an example of that in, in anesthesia? The unfortunate time we see that is with a patient who's a difficult intubation. Yeah. 
in which we get into trouble because we don't switch. Right. Right? I really know how to do this. Let me try again. I know how to do this. Let me try again. Don't bother me. I can get this tube in. Instead of saying, whoops, plan A isn't working. You know, my routine, you know, put the tube in. That's all I have to do. Wait a minute. I got to slow down. I mean, let me, let's regroup. Let's get the auction back up. Let's regroup and think of maybe I need to call a colleague in to help me out. Uh, maybe I need to use a different technique uh, of it. It, in anesthesiology, because it's such a rapid pace specialty, it, it's sometimes not as noticeable when we switch from system one, because system two thinking has to be pretty fast, pretty fast too. Right. But that's kind of, the, I think, one of the classic examples of when, when too much system one thinking and not willing to slow down and switch gets us into trouble. Yeah, I think that's an, an incredibly important example. You know, plan B is not necessarily different from plan A. They continue right. to try to do the same thing. Maybe someone else comes in the room and they also want to try direct laryngoscopy. And someone else comes in the room and they want to try direct laryngoscopy, but we need to actually switch the plan and have a different plan. Maybe we got to start over again. Maybe we got to cancel the case and start over again, which is a tough decision uh, right. to make because that gets our ego in, involved involved right. in it. So there's a lot goes into you know kind of doing that system one, system two, two thing. I think the important thing is why it's nice to be able to give this talk uh, is, is kind of knowledge of this that this is the way our thinking goes and, and kind of understanding as practitioners that we do have kind of two ways of solving problems. And if we're just a little bit more aware of which way we're, uh, we're using. Uh, and another thing in anesthesia, I think a lot of system two thinking comes in in our plan. Uh, I think sometimes if we don't involve system two thinking in the planning of our anesthetic, we get into trouble too. We don't think of it that way as switching from system one to system two in the pre-op period, but that may be an important time too. Uh, you know, half the big syringe and all the little syringe, kind of, that we used to say a long time ago. Uh, you know, the, an anesthesia reduction is just the same no matter, no matter what. Uh, that's kind of system one thinking in our planning, right. rather than system two thinking, oh, this patient isn't quite like the usual kind of patient, maybe we ought to think about a different kind of induction, and maybe my maintenance is going to be a little bit, a little bit different uh, than usual, keeping you out of trouble. Right. Uh, and then maybe let you use system one thinking throughout the rest of the case because the bad things didn't happen. Right. That's because you made better plans for it. That's so, so it really, you have to think about this thought process kind of total from when you know the case you're going to you're going to do maybe the night before to delivering the patient in the recovery room or at the, at the discharge. And really be conscious of when your thinking switches from one to the other, right. I think is, is an important, important concept. Right. Well, let's talk about the concept of coaching. I think this is a, a fascinating topic. We commonly think of coaching in terms of athletes or musicians, uh, those kind of professionals that you know, put in countless hours of deliberate practice and reflection and training and cross-training to develop some idea of peak performance or to reach some sort of goal we wouldn't think of a professional athlete being able to, or a team to be able to do those things without a coach, but that concept is largely absent <clears throat> from the field of healthcare. What are some of your thoughts on coaching and healthcare? I think the article in the New Yorker, I think it's 2011, that Atul Gawande had, uh, personal best, is a great article. Uh, for those of you who don't know Atul Gawande, he's a, a, an incredible gifted writer uh, and, and a surgeon down in, in, in Massachusetts. And in his article, he actually opened it by saying he had been a surgeon for eight years and felt that he wasn't getting better anymore, that he had plateaued, so noted that he had plateaued, uh, and invited a senior 
surgeon who was retired to come in and observe his surgery and give him some, some hints. He said it was, a, it, was a, it was a life-changing experience, as it were. Found out things about what he was doing that he hadn't thought about. Uh, in just that one surgery, he said he then felt he, he could move on to a new level. That's so unusual in healthcare. Right. Uh, we practice by ourselves, right? Uh, we're in a room doing our cases. Nobody sees what we're doing. We're dependent on our own feedback, which is very difficult. We, we, we don't give ourselves very good feedback. Um, and there's been lots of studies that have shown that. Have shown that. Uh, so what, what can a coach do? I, I think it's kind of three things that a coach, if we can find one for ourselves, uh, and this can be a peer coach. We can coach each other. Three, kind of three things. One is goal setting. We talked about that already. Doing the same kind of case over and over again doesn't get us better. So maybe a coach needs to help us set a goal. on What, what is it that you want to achieve? What, what's the outcomes get that you want? Second is the, the practice part of it. As we said, true practice is not fun. Uh, so we may need motivation and encouragement. So our coach can give us that kind of motivation and encouragement to continue our practice sessions. And thirdly, the hold a mirror up to ourselves, the, the observation. Maybe it doesn't need to observe us all the time. But at some point, the coach needs to observe us uh, and give us some feedback. Right. For it. That will maybe help us recalibrate the goals. That will give us a new practice, new practice element uh, for it. And we see that in the best residency and CRNA training programs, where our teachers are really coaches that set goals for us, help us practice, uh, give us good feedback, give us encouragement and motivation, uh, and then set us goals again that are a little beyond what we do. What we're lacking is that coaching outside of our training programs. Right. I think it's interesting that Dr. Gwandi points out that one of the big barriers to this idea of coaching as a, as a professional is of having someone observe you, that you're opening yourself up to the risk of exposure, the, the, the risk of discovering that you may actually still have things to learn, still have things to improve upon. Very scary. Uh, you know, we don't like to be observed. Uh, it, it puts, it's just risky. Uh, and, and putting ourselves at that kind of risk is important for growth. As opposed to the performance professions like music and athletics and chess playing, they're used to putting themselves out there in front and being observed, and their outcomes are right, right out, out there. Uh, you know, our outcomes aren't out there very much, and, and, and that's why a lot of the QI process is a little bit scary, scary too. I think we've got to get over that hurdle. Uh, we've got to be willing to, to say, if I'm going to grow, I've got to be critiqued, uh, and that's going to help me, help me grow. Uh, my interest is very much in education, particularly these days. And one of the processes that we're, where we're doing in a program that we have here at Maine Medical Center is uh, peer review of teaching. So it's not for our teachers, it's not just can you do the case, but are you, what's your teaching like? And I've been making rounds with hospitalists and family medicine practitioners and listening to their lectures, listening to their rounds, and giving them feedback on their teaching techniques. Not feedback on their medical expertise, but feedback on, on their education. How are they running rounds to become better teachers? Right. So it's not just you know, coaching for our clinical practice, but an educational institution, it's coaching for our teaching too. Which I think is a, an exceptional process because I think many people get into healthcare to first be a clinician, and then along the way, they get involved in education of residents or students uh, and that may not actually be a skill set where they've had formal training in. Yeah, probably not. There's not much in, in, in our training program. And we get to see good teachers and bad teachers, 
but we don't necessarily spend time understanding what makes a good teacher and what makes a bad teacher. Right. So unfortunately, we're still with this old see one, do one, teach one paradigm that hopefully we're moving, we're moving out of. I think it's interesting that Dr. Gawande, his experiment, as he calls it, into his own personal coaching started from receiving some coaching on his tennis game and then realizing that if I'm paying someone to help me with my serve in tennis, why not hire this retired surgeon to come in and watch his actual surgical performance? And earlier, uh, you mentioned an interesting idea of watching other people perform a case or watching other people do an induction or an airway management, uh, which may hold value for folks, especially if you've got you know downtime throughout the day or if you've got a, a, a light afternoon. It may be helpful to walk in on a difficult case or to, to see a senior clinician do their job. That was one of the lessons I learned when I was a resident. I had a, a senior clinician who I very, very much respected, and he used to rail against people hanging out in the break room and in, in, in the lunchroom, and he would say, look at that case schedule. You can't tell me there isn't a single case that you couldn't go down and observe and learn something about instead of hanging out in the lunchroom for that. That's uh, and, and that was a long time ago, and he was so right. Yeah, I think it is one of the phenomenon that is it's worth mentioning it again, that many students and residents struggle in their training programs with consistently working with different preceptors or clinical faculty, and they, I try to encourage SRNAs that that's the one opportunity in your career that you're going to get to see numerous different ways of doing things. And one of the limitations of working as a clinician is that you are relatively siloed in your own practice. You get out and you suddenly are just doing your own cases. And unless you deliberately Mm -hmm. go out and commit to watching other folks or asking for feedback, uh, that opportunity to see different ways of doing things often is is more challenging to come by. Yeah, absolutely. And in the literature, particularly the education literature, it's frequently referred to as having a critical friend who's going to observe observe your teaching. Uh, that's also very true in clinical work. When I was a fairly junior faculty, had a very close, who still is a close friend, uh, who worked at UCLA where I was, but also at, at Cedars-Sinai two days a week. And when we were together in the OR, we would often go in and observe each other's inductions or cases, uh, which many of the other faculty didn't do that. But we would say, well, what do you what do? You do? Oh, you've got a case. Just let, let me go in and let me, you know, maybe it's give you a hand, but maybe it's, you know, let me go in and watch what you're doing, how you're approaching that case. He would come to my cases, too, yeah. uh, for that. That was an incredible, early on as a faculty, just an incredible learning experience to, to kind of continue that camaraderie and how best to approach, approach a case. That's great. I'd like to ask you briefly about this idea of specialization in medicine and anesthesia. In today's world, can someone truly expect to be expert in all facets of anesthesia practice, or is there room and space for specialization? Well, I mean, from a, a, a philosophical point of view, we're all specialists, right? We started out as nurses or physicians, and then we became anesthesiologists or anesthetists, so we specialized right there. Sure. So we've already admitted that we can't know everything about, about medicine. So it, it's pretty arbitrary where we draw the line. It's a little bit of a red herring to say, you know, I, I can do everything, I think it's more dependent on on your institution. Uh, If you're in a community hospital that's doing a range of cases and you're going to be able to have to do those range of cases, you're going to do those range of cases. Uh, They may be uh, kids, they may be old people, uh, octanarians, but you're probably not going to be doing a kid with a diaphragmatic hernia. So there's a difference between doing a tonsil in a healthy two-year-old 
versus a diaphragmatic hernia in a one-week-old who's on ECMO. Right. Okay. Now, if you're at a major medical center where you're going to be doing where those kind of cases are going to be there, uh, maybe you need to start to specialize uh, a little bit. It's not everybody's going to be doing the baby with a diaphragmatic hernia. It involves a lot of uh, kind of setting the systems up to do that because now you need teams and you need call. Uh, so I think it's a very institutional basis. It, it's you know that degree of specialization will depend on your institution. Not to mention it's also a political political issue, uh, of reimbursement and hospital based and pediatric anesthesia. And as we mentioned before we started, I mentioned before we started talking uh, on on the air, it's different for teaching mm-hmm. too. I, I think if you're in an institution where there's there's teaching of students and residents probably pushes a higher degree of specialization than if there isn't if there isn't teaching. It's a difference between being able to do a case with a degree of expertise right. and be able to teach about that case in an even greater degree, a degree of expertise. So an educational institution tends to drive specialization more than if it was an institution that didn't have the same kind of educational commitments. Right. That's an interesting point. What would you say uh, to young clinicians who are looking at the scope of their career, anticipating you know, the next 20, 30, 40 years of practice and helping them understand that uh, careers can evolve over time, that, w- that where you begin may not be where you, where you end. Sure, and, and I'm, I'm probably somewhat guilty of, of, of hanging on to things too long. Uh, you, you, know, you get opportunities to do lots of things and sometimes you have to let go of a few things too. And I've always had some difficulty letting, you know, letting go of some of the other things and you get, get you know, too many things to do. Uh, you know, I think you have to decide what it is at this point in your career uh, is going to be the thing that you're going to be the most expert in. And so it does require some narrowing of your focus. And then once you've narrowed that focus, really put your, your heart and soul into it. Uh, do the difficult pieces of it. Try to learn more, more about that particular area with the understanding that a decade later you may have moved on to something else and putting your heart and soul into something else too. But just don't be satisfied with a level of competence at the, whatever you're focusing on now but only be satisfied, as Pablo Casal said, I'm continuing to improve. That's great. Anything else that you'd like to share in terms of expertise in anesthesia and medicine? Uh, I can't think of anything. You, you, you give a pretty compre- <laughs> comprehensive uh, level of questioning together. I just hope this, uh, this podcast will be of use to some people and will maybe challenge, challenge some of our listeners out there to, to delve more into the literature and expertise and also think about how it can affect their practice. That's great. Well, we'll definitely put links in the show notes to some of the books and articles that you've uh, mentioned while we've chatted today and otherwise. So, Dr. Ward, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Great. Thanks, John. Appreciate it.